was, it had to be 1984. I was eight years old. You're 10. You're um, 12. Everyone else is probably plus or minus somewhere around there. There I was in assembly. Assembly for Sunday school for our little children's church. We did a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service. There was no children's church for the Sunday evening service, just for the Sunday morning. And so most of the kids didn't come at night because big church, as we call it, where the adults are, is a time for the children to be silent like everyone else. And children struggle with that. So I have to confess, I spent more time in the nursery than uh, our children in our church spent in the nursery because the nursery was really the babysitter they hired to watch me and a couple other kids. Um, so our parents could come to church and learn on a Sunday night. There I was in Sunday school with our awesome Sunday school teacher and music uh, assembly leader for the kids. We had a piano just for us. She was a piano uh, playing music teacher in an elementary school. And she ran our assembly and taught us a lot of the, the classes we, we had in Sunday school. And I have to tell you that every Sunday, probably for five years, I sang the song I want to tell you about. I thought this was sung in the Revolutionary War period. I thought it was from the origins of our country. It's really not. It's a generation or two later. But um, later on, I found out that the uh, British sing this about their king or queen, depending on what they have in the moment. God save the queen. God save the king. And I thought we had stolen it from the British. And I have to say that when we sang it the other day, we had our little sing-along outside, a little picnic. If you didn't, if you missed it, boy, we missed you. And it was a great time. But we sang this song. I had trouble not choking up. And you know what an emotional guy I am. I had trouble not choking up when we sang this song, which ends with a prayer. Our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might. Let freedom ring. The last verse of... My country tis of thee is a prayer. And I was taught by our Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Elmore, to sing that prayerfully. Children, this last verse is a prayer. Remember, our Father's God, to thee, author of liberty, we, to thee we sing. You're singing to God. I also learned from that that, by the way, look at the Psalms, we're always singing to God. All of our praise is song to God. Singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 19. The year is 1831. The song, My Country Tis of Thee, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, says Psalm 3312. Robert Morgan writes, This patriotic hymn was written by Samuel Francis Smith, a native Bostonian born on October 21st of 1808. After attending Boston Latin School, he enrolled in Harvard, then attended Andover Seminary. While there, Samuel became fascinated by the work of Adoniram Judson, America's first foreign missionary. He developed a lifelong passion for world evangelism. Now, Robert Morgan says first missionary, that's not right. We had many missionaries before that in the colonies. Jonathan Edwards went with his sons and preached to the Indians. There, were a lot, there was a lot of missionary activity here on the continent toward the other nations that were here. We don't talk about that part of the history because it doesn't fit the Marxist narrative of the materialists that run Satan's media. Robert Morgan didn't say that. I said that. Adoniram Judson. Who's heard of Adoniram Judson? Who's ever learned about him? This is a great life to read.
On a cold February, oh, wait, wait, wait. It was also during Samuel's first year in Andover that hymn publisher Lowell Mason sought his help. Mason had a stack of German songs and materials needing translation. Learning that Samuel was proficient in German, he recruited the young student to translate the songs. On a cold February afternoon, about a half hour before sunset, Samuel sat in his sparsely furnished room, poring over the materials, and he was struck by the words, Gott seg Sachsenland. That's German, which I butchered, but it's God bless our Saxon land was the origin of this song. My country tis of thee. God bless our Saxon land. It's a patriotic song the Saxons sang. Set to the tune we know as America, the my country tis of thee. Great Britain used it for God save the queen. Let freedom ring. Sounds better to me, but. He said, I instantly felt the impulse to write a patriotic hymn of my own adapted to this tune. Picking up a scrap of paper, which lay near me, I wrote at once, probably within half an hour, the hymn America as it is now known. That's how good doggerel poetry is written quickly with a gust of emotional interest and attention. And then we go squared away a little bit afterwards. A friend, William Jenks, took a copy uh, to the pastor of Boston's Park Street Congregational Church. And there, America was first sung by the Juvenile Choir, that's in capital letters, Juvenile Choir, at a Sunday school rally on July 4th, 1831. In the years that followed, Samuel Francis Smith grew into a powerful Baptist preacher, pastor, college professor, hymnist, linguist, writer, and missionary advocate. He traveled the world, you could have just said pastor, I think, but because we're supposed to be really involved in what we're doing. He traveled the world to support the evangelism in support of evangelism, and he rejoiced when his son became a missionary to Rangoon. Samuel lived to ripe old age and remained active till the end. He died suddenly in his late 80s at the Boston train station en route to a preaching appointment. But he's always been most revered for the patriotic hymn he wrote as a 23-year-old student, as his friend and Harvard classmate Oliver Wendell Holmes put it in uh, at a class reunion. He said he had a little bit of a poem that Holmes said. There's a nice youngster of excellent pith. Fate tried to conceal him by naming him Smith. But he shouted a song for the brave and the free. Just read on his medal, my country of thee. The name again was Samuel Francis Smith from Boston. The story of my country tis of thee. I, was, I grew up thinking we had just ripped off the English and their God save the king song to, to, to say we're free and we're not under the English king. No. I mean, that's true that we were thinking that way, but that song comes from Germany and uh, that's part of your hymn book. And I think if you listen to the tune, I've always been captivated, haunted by that tune. The older I get, the more I appreciate it. Now I know why it's got some old continental depth. And uh, I think that's fantastic. One of my other favorite hymn writer, one of my favorite hymn writers, of course, is uh, John Newton. And he wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, he wrote another one that we sing, but people from other countries don't understand why we would sing it because of what Hitler did with Haydn's uh, piece. I forget the name of Haydn's tune, but John Newton wrote, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. And that tune for Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, spoken is by one of the greatest Austrian composers, Francis Haydn, Franz Joseph Haydn. And, um, and Hitler... And the Nazis took dun, 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 which had nothing to do with white, white supremacy or uh, social Darwinism or 
materialism or um, blood and soil or kill all the Jews or any of the evil things that Satan had uh, inspired the Nazis to promulgate. Um, uh, before that, uh, that song had nothing to do with that, but they turned it into their little national song, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. That's Germany, Germany overall. And um, what's amazing is that before that, before that, John Newton wrote about the Zion, the city of our God, which is going to be over all. And so um, we sing glorious things of thee are spoken. We love that song. What, did you notice I'm telling you about our music? We're not really singing it. We're telling about our music. I almost want to do a show of hands of who's ready to risk singing together. <laughs> and see, we just had a division in the church. The earthquake shatters and the, the building falls in half. I get it. 30% still, 29.17% of people over the age of 80 die of COVID-19. That's math. That's kinetic. And you say, well, it's nursing homes. Okay. But the 50s that die of it and the 15% aren't, or, or 60s that die of it are not in nursing homes. So I just, um, wanna, I want to sing with you too. Mike and I have kicked this around a little bit about singing together. I'm taking a little time to talk about this with you because it is a church family and this is a central part of worship, worshiping God in song. And I, I feel more oppressed by the lack of singing together than any other factor with this COVID-19 thing, including, you know, wear a mask to be allowed entry into a building. It's kind of the opposite direction things seem to be going to me, by the way, that you have to wear a mask to enter the building because for a long time, we were worried about facial recognition cameras, like telling the, the, whatever the business was, who you were when you walked in. You know, the facial recognition stuff is there and they could just identify you from the database you've populated on Facebook. And they could tell who all came in the building. Now, nobody has any idea. It's amazing. Uh, but I, of all the oppressive things, the greatest is to me is that we're not singing. Mike and I have kicked it around. Some people are like, let's just sing and just you know, trust the Lord with uh, not, we won't catch it. And I'm singing and trusting the Lord with wisdom that we not do things to cause ourselves to catch it. And so um, I'm proposing we get together and sing and do it again, like we did last month. And um, I'd like to sing at the picnic. I'd like to, to sing with you there because we'll be outside and we'll all be together and we'll make that part of our day. And um, if you don't come to the picnic, uh, then you won't get to do this sing-along. We'll have to catch you on another time. But um, it really is a central part of our music and our, of, our, of our worship. And so is the Lord's table and so is the ministry of the word. So let's get to that. Let's get to the ministry of the word of God. Is my mic dead? Did die? No, it's okay. We're doing something crazy. We're blowing through Ephesians in six Sundays. Verse by verse, though, looking at every concept that Paul treats and going quickly, but observing. And we're, we're in the middle of Paul's discussion of what the universal church is. And I, I asked a couple of quiz questions to some engaged young people about what we were talking about first hour. And the question was, what is the universal church? And one answer I got was the Roman Catholic Church, which told me that I need to slow down and actually communicate what I'm trying to say. 
if you see the word church in the New Testament, you have to ask a question. This is it. Is he talking about the local assembly like this church is? That's one use of the word church. Or is he talking about the body of Christ, all those who are in Christ, all believers since the day of Pentecost until the rapture? Which, what, which use of the word ecclesia is Paul meaning there? No, no, that, that's, no, that's the question you have to ask in every case. You have to say, is he talking about local church? The pillar and ground of the truth seems to be talking about the local church and Timothy, but Ephesians 3 is talking about those who are united to Jesus Christ. So here's how this works. There are two meanings for ecclesia, but they're related. Everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, since the Holy Spirit started baptizing people into Christ, every believer is the church, part of the church. And that means assembly. Ecclesia means just assembly. In Paul's day, now the origin of the word is those who are called out, but it doesn't mean those who are called out. It just means assembly. That's how it's used. It's used in vernacular. It's used in uh, contemporary vernacular in, Greek, in uh, Koine Greek. It's used in the Bible this way. It means the assembly. It doesn't mean the building where we assemble. Okay, that's really important. It means the assembly of people. You are the church. If we go out in the, the, the Patchogue Pond and sing, well, the church was out there singing. This place was empty, but the church was out singing at Patchogue Pond. That's how to think about it. Now, it means assembly, and, and here is the way it works. Everybody who trusts in Jesus as Savior has, by the Holy Spirit, been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you first trusted in Christ. And that makes you the church, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. That is also the universal church, body of Christ, right? It is not the Roman Catholic church. It is the Catholic or universal church. Catholic, I think it's Latin, but it just means universal. That's the big sense of church, the theological sense, if you will. But those who belong to the body of Christ, who assemble together, in a local expression that is visible, that's a local church. That's another use of the word church. And it means a subset of the body of Christ. That's the idea. That's what it means. Now, there are practices people have adopted. You can only take communion if you've been baptized by water. That's a traditional claim. The Bible doesn't say. Only believers are allowed to take communion in this church. Only members of our church who have been baptized in the church can take communion in the church. This is called closed communion. That's how some churches operate. It's a theory. It's trying to acknowledge that the local church is a subset of the universal church. So we're trying to have confirmed believers in our worship service and our rituals of worship. And I understand why people would do that. But see, you aren't saved because you've been baptized by water. You don't have fellowship with God through the water. You have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus. And when you first trusted in Christ, you have taken the person and work of Christ on faith. So theologically, the idea that you have to be water baptized to take communion is, that's, that's an interesting traditional idea. But let's talk about water baptism. We're talking about ecclesiology. One second, please. Technically, we're having difficulties. Tom said swiftly, okay. We're having difficulties, Tom said technically. That's what I was trying to say, okay. That's called Tom Swifty. All right. 
Baptism is the second topic everyone wants to talk about when we talk about the doctrine of the church. How do we do it? Who does it? Who gets it? What's it for? What does it do? I think most of you could probably answer that question. Believers in the Bible are baptized. First, by the Holy Spirit when we first believe, and that's a dry baptism. It means identification. And then Jesus says, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's water to proclaim, to demonstrate that you have believed, that you are united to Jesus Christ. The water is a portrayal. Just like the Lord's table is the portrayal that I've trusted and that I do trust in the person and work of Christ, water baptism is a portrayal that I have been united to Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the water means identification. Water means identification. That's what is going on in water baptism. Well, what, Pastor, what, what about uh, Acts 2.38? That you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, it's a mistranslation. That's not what it means. You, could, you should translate that baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Because. See, you're identifying that you have the life. The water doesn't give you the life. The Holy Spirit gives you the life. That's the way it works. But the water proclaims it. So when Jesus commands to go and make disciples by baptizing them, whoa, now we're under obligation to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And it turns out, first thing you do by God's design, apparently, as a new believer is obey this instruction to demonstrate what is true spiritually. You demonstrate it physically. That's the idea of water baptism. It's a ritual proclaiming the reality of your position in Christ. And we should do it. It's a bearing witness ministry that a new believer does as a new growing disciple of the Lord and obeys this instruction of our Savior. It is a moment of proclamation. You know, we had a lady who was raised Muslim in Africa who came to this church as a, as a CNA with Peggy. Came to this church for three years. Never really talked to each other because, you know... The, they're caring for, she's caring for Peggy. And finally she said, she came up pasta. I would like to have a talk with you, please. Can we have an appointment and sit down? Well, sure. Sit down. Linda says, I want to be baptized. Honey, I didn't know you were listening. I thought you were nursing. I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. I've been listening to everything you've said for three years. I want to be baptized. Pastor, you have to understand, I was raised Muslim. My family is Muslim. My father is Muslim. In our country, the North is Muslim. The South is Catholic. My family is from both sides. So it's not quite like a Muslim person in the Middle East being baptized. But still, I want to go back to my country and tell all of my family about Jesus. And Jesus says we should be baptized. I want to proclaim my faith in Christ. Linda Sambona. We were talking about baptism. I was preparing her for what this was. We were having the discussion to understand what you're doing as you become baptized. When she dropped it on me that she had been raised Muslim. That's why the head covering. I thought it was an African, you know, cultural thing. No, it was, a, it was the job. It was their version of the hijab. I said, there are going to be repercussions in your family, aren't there? For becoming 
a known Christian. Have you thought, thought about this? Of course, I'm not trying to talk her out of it. I'm trying to help her understand. She says, oh yes, this is why I want to do it. See, it helps to understand, if you look at a different culture and how things work in a different culture, it might help you understand what we're doing when we proclaim Christ by water baptism. We think it's, you know, it's what we do. The American experiment is, it's the water you live in. It's the, you're a fish swimming in this freedom. And you don't think about how wealthy you are to have it because you're just flush with fresh, good water to swim in. But the world is dying of thirst for this freedom that we live in. So when you see it like this, hopefully, hopefully help you understand. Our baptism this next Saturday is part of our freedom in Christ and the freedom that he's given us historically within this country to proclaim him. And it is an awesome opportunity. I am not trying to sell anyone to do it. I'm not, we don't push people to become baptized in this church. I get pressure from my kids because here's how this works. It's a physical illustration and God teaches us little kids with physical illustrations. Every time we do it, my littlest kids say, daddy, do me, do me. Well, son, it's not just swimming. Oh, I know. I want you to show that I'm identified with Jesus Christ. They almost say something like that. And, you know, somewhere after three, four, five, I'll do it. <laughs> I don't uh, push this to be done, but I want everyone to know that the time that we are all together by a body of water is annually planned. We do it in July. It's this Saturday. If you would like to obey the Lord Jesus Christ on this one to proclaim your faith in Christ, this would be a good opportunity to do it. If you uh, think, well, I was baptized as a baby, but I wasn't a believer. If I was in that condition, baptized as an infant and hadn't been baptized as a believer to proclaim my faith in Christ, I would do it as a believer. And then they would call you an Anabaptist. Baptize again. If you've been baptized as a believer, but you really want to, don't think you, you understood it well enough and you really want to do it again. No. One time. That's the idea. One, one proclamation, you're baptized. Finally, if you're interested in doing this, I definitely want to sit down and talk with you just a little bit beforehand. I want to talk about what it is and what it means. I want to encourage you about this. And if you're interested, please, with, with whatever social distance makes you most comfortable, come tell me. You can even text me. Talk to me about it. And um, it's available this, this coming Saturday. Do you know my story of water baptism? I was raised in a church that said, because the apostle Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone except for a couple of you in first in Corinthians. That means that Paul stopped the ritual of water baptism. And it was only for very strangely, the generation between Jesus saying it. And when Paul said those words, so it was only going for something like 20 years. No, no, no. Paul is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not Pauline Christians, we're Christians. And if you read what Paul says about baptism in 1 Corinthians, it has nothing to do with the command of Jesus, except that they're abusing it and they're carnal in dividing over who their pastor is. No, we don't need to adulterate the word of God like that. In fact, that's a curse. So I grew up not being baptized. I was told by friends at seminary, people in your church don't believe in the, or the, the, uh, the ordinances. They don't even do communion. I said, I've done communion every month of my life. 
What are you talking about? We don't do communion. Well, they don't believe in the ordinances. So there's all kinds of crazy ideas and rumors that develop, but no, they didn't do water baptism because there was a misunderstanding. And the idea comes out of the dispensational roots. The first systematic theologian of dispensationalism was John Nelson Darby in English anyway, and he's probably the first one. And he's not too long after the first guy to systematize covenant theology. It's just that these systems of theology weren't very well developed to unite ecclesiology and eschatology. But Darby was your most prolific writer. It's funny how people have never read Darby, read one you know, little hit piece article about him and think they know anything about Darby. Darby's bookshelf is this big. I mean, it's, he's a massive theologian and he didn't believe in water baptism because he was raised Episcopal and he just couldn't quite shake the infant baptism thing. If you read him about it, he doesn't think it was for salvation. He thinks it's to be part of the covenant community, the father of modern dispensational theology. Fast forward to a couple generations later, you get Lewis Berry Chafer, Presbyterian pastor. They baptize infants. If you read his systematic theology on the doctrine of baptism in the bottom, in the, like, I think it's in the footnote, it says, well, regarding baptism of infants, we don't really want to, it dithers because it doesn't, it's not consistent with the rest of what he says about in his theology in terms of theological method, in terms of soteriology, in terms of ecclesiology, it doesn't jive. But these people are Presbyterians and they are part of a culture that baptizes babies. It's a big deal. John Walbert was an infant Baptist, pedo-baptist you know, until he died. Now you and I are like, well, hang on a second. The water doesn't save you anyway. It's the faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. So uh, maybe this isn't such a big deal, except that Jesus says to do it. We need to figure out what it is he's telling us to do. It is not, as the reformed people said, a replacement of circumcision. I can see why in the Bible in one place they might think that, but it's not. It's not a replacement of circumcision. We baptize little girls. No, absolutely not not a covenant issue, a identification with Jesus Christ issue. So this is the tradition that I grew up in that said, well, um, the, the way I grew up hearing it was water baptism isn't an issue. So when you start saying, okay, let's do it. They say, well, what, no, no. Well, I thought it wasn't an issue, but, but you're doing it. Well, I, so what you mean is don't do it when you say it's not an issue. So here's what I conclude from reading the scriptures and my that I need to actually be in fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a believer and you're going to be on mission and you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, that's a thing between you and God, but it is a point of disobedience. It is a, it is a point of disobedience and we're not hunting you. We're not going to sniff you out and find, have you been dunked? We're not going to do that. But if you haven't, please consider this is a great opportunity coming up. I've had people that were, uh, that were terminally ill. Hey, do I need to do this before I die? Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he comes with the Lord's table and you proclaim your eternal life that you have in Jesus Christ through baptism. One-time baptism, all the time, Lord's table. So that's the ecclesiology. And it's interesting that we're doing this event here where we're in Ephesians chapter three, talking about ecclesiology. Now let's get into the mystery. The mystery of Ephesians 3, which is the conclusion of Paul's section in Ephesians on the privileges we have in the church. What chapters tell us about the privileges in the body of Christ? What chapters? Chapters 1 through 3. And what chapters tell us about our practices as members of the body of Christ? That'd be chapters 
4 through 6, and that's Ephesians. And it's all about the universal church. That's what the book is about. So with, let's get into chapter 3, where Paul has a very interesting uh, 13 verses. And he says, and let's just, we'll just jump into the translation here. He says, on account of this, on account of your um, reconciliation and your being built into the body of Christ and the temple of God in the end of chapter two, on account of this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles, I'm a prisoner of Christ on your behalf. I'm stuck and I can't travel. I've got to write. I'm writing for you. I believe he's talking about the benefits that he gave the Ephesians by being in prison that we now have. So Paul's imprisonment directly affects us. That's what he's doing here. I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles. And then he begins what's called a really long Anacoluthan. He is going to digress from something on their behalf, on our behalf, until verse 13. That's what happens. Let me show you the, the logic. And just if we had time, we'd really put, develop it. Watch. If indeed you've heard about the stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, then I'm requesting that you not be discouraged by my tribulations on your behalf, which is your glory. It's not up there. That's terrible. I forgot to hook up the ground wire. Apologize. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles, if indeed you, you, on whose behalf I'm doing this, have heard about the stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me for you. And then he's going to digress on that. But before we show the digression, look what he does. If, if you've heard about this stewardship that I have for you, then I'm requesting you not be discouraged by my tribulation on your behalf, which is for your glory. The sandwich of the long Anacoluth or the long, you know, rabbit trail. People criticize me for chasing rabbits, but I say I get it honest. Paul is chasing a huge rabbit here in this long discussion, but it's God's word. It's what the spirit of God wanted him to write. It's what's in his heart as he's thinking through what God wants for these people. So he, he chases in verses one through 14, the personal relationship that he has with the Ephesians the personal relationship that he has with them. He's been with them for years. He said farewell to them on the island of, um, of Cy Cyprus. And he is, he is now, I think it was Cyprus, I forget. But he said goodbye in chapter 20 of Acts. And now he's writing to them after the events of the book of Acts. And he's saying, I am in prison on your behalf. And you've heard about this stewardship. If you've heard about the stewardship of the grace of God, that makes me the apostles of the Gentiles for you, that my life now on earth, before I go to heaven, my life is for your spiritual growth. If you've heard about this, then, and therefore I'm requesting you not be discouraged. I'm asking you not to be discouraged by my tribulations on your behalf, which is for your glory. If you know that I'm suffering as a prisoner for your sake, don't be sad about that. That's the big sentence of chapters, chapter 13, verse one through 13. That's the big sentence. It's a shell. Ever see a, a movie that's got a shell story? It's got multiple, multiple chapters or multiple little sub stories, but there's a shell that goes around it. That's kind of what this does literarily. And if you, if you don't do this with verse 13, then verse two makes no sense. But that, this is what he's doing. He's got this long digression. So let me read it to you again. On account of this stewardship of the gospel ministry that I've been given, I, the prison, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, for you, the sake of you, the Gentiles, if indeed you've heard about the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, 
Therefore, I'm requesting you not be discouraged by my tribulations on your behalf, which is for your glory. So you need to know two things. One is that I am suffering for your sake. And two, it's for your glory. It is for God's glory. Don't be discouraged about it. Even as we cry and hurt that Paul is hurting, we weep when others weep. We're not discouraged about it. We don't give up hope. We don't say, well, the, the, the Christian movement is failing or, or, or faltering. No, this is how it has to be. If you want to get it right, as part of the body of Christ, it is going to hurt. And it'll hurt in bearing along with one another. Paul, to do his work, to function within his giftedness, to do what God has Samuel, for, for, for Paul to do the works that God prepared in advance for him to walk in, he's going to have to hurt. It's going to be a tribulation to him. Now, let's get into the, what's in the middle. What's in the middle of this? Verses 3 through 13, uh, 3 through 12. Verse 3 through 7 is another long sentence. Paul tells a long sentence, and it's chock full of biblical doctrine. And we'll read it, and then we'll summarize it. That for the purpose of revelation, the, the mystery was made known to me, just as I wrote before briefly, According to the standard of which mystery you are able when reading to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which mystery in other generations was not known to the sons of men as now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Wow, that is a mouthful, but th this is the doctrine that Paul has been given. And so he's helping them understand what his role is in communicating with them. And, and this is just setting him up for the big prayer in chapter three, verse 14. He's going to pray that they'll come to know this supernatural deposit of wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. As Gentiles who've been united to Jesus Christ in this new organization called the church. So this is the stewardship that Paul was, com that was commended to Paul. And it was this mystery. And he keeps using this word musterion, mystery. In verse six, this is it. This is why I think he fronts the infinitive. So it doesn't say this is it, but I think this is what he's doing. He's saying, here it is. Here's the mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow body and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That is the mystery that he's talking about. You Gentiles he's writing to are part of this mystery. It's the one new body in Christ of Jews and Gentiles. Paul's a Jew, John's a Jew, John Mark's a Jew, John the Apostle's a Jew, James the brother of Jesus wrote the book of James is a Jew, James the Apostle's a Jew. This is a Jewish movement. But the Gentiles have been brought in. So the remnant of Israel has been combined with believing Gentiles into a new agency, a new body. That's the doctrine that Paul calls the mystery. All my life, I heard the mystery doctrine of the church, the mystery doctrine of the church. What is the mystery doctrine of the church? The one new body composed of Jew and Gentile. It's not all of the New Testament teaching. It's this doctrine that Jesus Christ is composing his body of Jew and Gentile alike into one new man. The gospel of which I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. How many different ways can Paul talk about God's grace? Look at this, so cool, watch this. So, so you Gentiles become partakers of God's promise in Christ through the gospel when you believe the gospel, the message of Christ dying for your sins and rising from the dead. 
and of this message, this gospel, I've become a servant according to the gift. Reference to grace. God gave it. It's a gift of the grace of God. Second reference to God's grace, which was given. You don't give a wage, you give a gift, which was given to me according to the working of his power. It's all grace all the time. It's the grace of God. It's not earned or deserved by us. It's extended to us because of what Christ has accomplished. And let's look at this in some summary detail. That for the purpose of revelation, uh, the mystery was made known to me, just as I wrote before briefly in Ephesians 1, 9, probably what he's talking about. I, I mentioned it in passing a little bit earlier in the letter. The mystery was made known to me just as I wrote before briefly, according to the standard of which mystery you are able when reading to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. You're understanding that I've been given something that wasn't known before. You have to know what a mystery is to understand this. Mysterion means information that God is revealing that wasn't known prior. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that the Bible is made of code. And if you mathematically set up a code, then you can come to know the mystery. It doesn't mean that the language encodes so that if we understand this verb in the aorist in this place, then in the aorist tense over here, it means the same thing and brings all the doctrine from this passage over here. And we end up with a different kind of Bible code. It's not that. It's not that. It's functioning language that the Holy Spirit has inspired so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can think the same thoughts that Paul is thinking. So mystery means information that God had not chosen to reveal. He'll define it in context. It wasn't revealed beforehand. There are lots of things that are prophetically revealed that would be future. But the doctrine of the one new man in Christ, this agency is not revealed. People say, wait a second. In the Old Testament, there is a prophecy of the Gentiles coming to the Lord. But that's not a mystery doctrine of the church. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about not the ruling agency of the church that will rule with Christ in the kingdom. He's talking about the actual nations coming to the Lord in the kingdom when, it's, when the nations are streaming to the Lord. This is not that. This is in preparation for that. This is you are part of the coming infrastructure of that administration. Bunch of Christian kingdom bureaucrats. It'll be a holy and divine and perfectly functioning and efficient and righteous bureaucracy. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, like military intelligence. But you are part of this agency, this organization called in one place, the bride of Christ. Where does the bride sit in terms of the kingdom at her, at her groom's right hand? This is your destiny to, with Christ, rule all things. Where did I get that? He is the heir of all things, and we are fellow heirs with him. You come to inherit all things with Christ. That's said of the church. This doctrine of the church is why Darby became the systematizer of dispensationalism. He was looking for the doctrine of the church. This is the doctrine that came before his understanding of the pre-tribulation rapture. Rapture as a pre-trib timing thing is an adjunct to this doctrine of the church. And people that deny the pre-trib rapture, watch them, they're denying the new agency that is the church. They're trying to find the church as Abraham or as the Mosaic law or something and missing what happened when the Holy Spirit came to make us one new man in Christ. So this wasn't known before, and that's why the language of mystery. It was made known to me just as I wrote before earlier in chapter one, according to the standard of which you are able when reading to understand my insight 
into the mystery of Christ. That standard of which is important. It's mystery. And if you get it from me, then you know. And if you don't get it from Paul, then we don't know. Because God's protocol way was to tell us through Paul. And so the standard of the mystery is that you get it from me. You get it from this revelation that Paul is delivering here. Aren't you glad Paul was in prison all of a sudden? Why? Because to tell him this, he had to write it. And since he wrote it, we can read it. And that is God's use of technology. By the way, history has taught us to make hard copies and preserve them. <laughs> if you have anything of value that you want to maintain, photographs, documents you've written, make sure you have a hard copy that's in some sort of preserved state because you're probably going to be able to enjoy that for just a few decades and then it'll be gone. That's the nature of technology and the communication of thoughts. My friend Robbie Dean uh, shared his notes with me when, when I first started teaching Galatians. I said, he said, what do you teach? I said, Galatians in like 2007, 2008. And uh, I said, what do you got on Galatians? And he, he showed me his notes that he'd done, you know, here probably 10 years before. And they were in a word processor document that even though we're really smart with our new technology, the new stuff can't read the old word processor document. It's all gobbledygook, wing dings and stuff. That's why the Galatians series seems so crazy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, Galatians is challenging logically is why that might seem challenging. Like here, this is challenging logically. Now, I just take a quick depth reading. Isn't this hard? Isn't this hard stuff to, to think through? There's so many decisions we have to make to interpret these, these phrases. So many decisions that are being made in terms of the translation, the interpretation. In, in any good English translation, you're still having to do this. I believe that this is an indication that if you want the goods, if you want to scale the peaks of, of, uh, of like the pinnacle of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 3, you're going to have to work. There's no spray paint here. You're going to have to use elbow grease. There's no shortcut. We're gonna have to shovel the driveway. We can't just spray de-icer. I think a lot of preaching is de-icer. This is, this is spade work, it's hard. And I'm inviting you to do it with me. When, when the boys and I go swimming, um, they like to play submarine. You know what submarine is? That's where you, you put them on your back, you get a big breath, you teach them to hold, hold, take a deep breath, and then you dive down under the water for as long as they can stand it. Of course, you've got to arrange beforehand a little tap out system because uh, the, by the time they're screaming, it's too late. So, um, so the little tap out, right? The daddy, that's, you know, that's enough. But they're learning to swim underwater by playing submarine. It's kind of a thing. It's, it's very popular in certain circles in the Roseland house. All right. Uh, they couldn't go down there. They can't hit the bottom of the pool um, by themselves. Not yet, but I take them down there and they love it and they're learning to swim. And uh, that's one of the methods. And so that some, sometimes that's what I want to do with you, especially if we're working through Paul, because this is what you have to do. According to the standard of which, of that mystery, you are able when reading to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which mystery in other generations was not known to the sons of men. As now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. That's the New Testament. The apostles and prophets of the New Testament by the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is the mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow body members 
and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Of which gospel I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. He's telling them and he's telling us that this thing called the church is a new thing. It was an unknown thing before. It is a highly privileged thing that you Gentiles get to be part of this household God is building called the body of Christ. Highly privileged. In verses 8 through 13, you have God's purpose in, in Paul's stewardship. Stewardship, we keep using that word. Paul has been given this the positive revelation that he now has to steward. He has to take care of it. It has nothing to do with money. People say stewardship means giving. No, no, no. This has to do with the, the ministry that has been committed to him by this deposit of revelation. And in a way, as you come to receive this deposit of revelation from Paul and Ephesians, by God's grace, you become a member of this stewardship. You become a person who now has this deposit. What are you going to do with it? James says, if you walk away from the word and forget what it said about you, what kind of person you are in Christ, right here, body of Christ, privileged beyond anything revealed in the Old Testament. If you walk away from this word and forget what this deposit means, then you're double-minded. This is the application of the doctrine of the church. He says to me, okay, this was given to me. And what does he say about me? The least of all the saints was given this grace among the Gentiles to preach the good news, the unfathomable wealth. Your Bible might say riches. Riches is plural. Plutos is in the singular. So I'll translate it wealth. The unfathomable wealth of Christ. See, we're diving deep. It's unfathomable. I don't really feel like it's unfathomable sometimes. I know we don't feel this. We've got to sink down into this. It's amazing. Bookworms like me were called for such a time as this. To get this, you've got to dig. I'm pretty much useless except for something like this. I can help you with this. I believe when, you, when you're screwing something in, it's to the right. And if you're unscrewing it, it's the opposite. Unless it's counter-threaded, cross-threaded, and then I'll have to call someone but I can help you with this. To me, to the least of all the saints was given this grace among the Gentiles to preach the good news, the unfathomable wealth of Christ. Do you think of Paul as the least of the saints? I don't. I think of him as the, the channel, the personal channel God chose to give us this information so that we would know God in a way we could never know him. But Paul, in the inspiration of the Spirit, says the least of the saints, probably referring to his persecution of the church and his attempt to actually shut it down in its beginning. He didn't just kill a few Christians. If that was all, we'd be, well, I mean, other Christians have killed Christians. He tried to kill the church in its beginning. He tried to do a very, very near postpartum abortion of the entire thing. He was the guy blowing out the candle, the very beginning of the flickering candle. He was going to blow it out or hit it with a fire hose. And God said, no, I actually think wanted you to spread this fire. And he got hold of him and that's Acts 9. So this was given to me, this grace, to preach among the Gentiles the good news, the unfathomable wealth of Christ, and was also given to me to illuminate all as to what is the stewardship of the mystery, which has been hidden from eternity past in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, so that it would be made known now to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. 
So verse 10 told you the reason for what we're doing, and it has to do with a demonstration to fallen, and I propose elect angels. There is a, an angelic witness that you and I are. He doesn't tell you much more than that. And I've heard lots of conjectures. Let's don't do that. Let's own and dogmatically inculcate this. What God is doing in the church is making known the manifold wisdom of God to the authorities in the heavenlies through the church, according to the eternal purpose, which he made in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and access and confidence through faith in him. Back to access to the father as part of his topic. Therefore, I'm requesting that you not be discouraged by my tribulations on your behalf, which is your glory. It doesn't work in English, but this is some really awesome Greek. I'm told by people that know Greek better than I probably ever will. All right. To me, this is the reason for Paul's, watch it, the purpose. Samuel, Isaiah, other kids your age, do y'all know the purpose of God giving Paul the word that he gave him? Do you know why he gave it to him? Watch the answer to that question in verses 8 through 12. To me, the least of all the saints was given this grace among the Gentiles, and the grace was to preach the good news. Do you ever think of that, that the, the, the calling on your life to be a disciple maker is grace from God, that it's a work he prepared in advance as a grace thing for you to be involved in? Oh, no, we, we don't want to be bothered with work. But it, it, this stewardship is, this preaching the good news is grace from God. And the good news is the unfathomable wealth of Christ. And he also gave me this grace to illuminate all as to what is the stewardship of the mystery so that I could teach people what the church is. All the letters, the 13 letters of Paul, mostly to churches. To illuminate all as to what is the stewardship, the deposit responsibility of this mystery, which has been hidden from eternity past in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And now the so that verse 10 tells you why he did it. Now look at the simple sentence structure. It's really obvious. Watch this. All, all the people put your eyes up on the screen. It's so helpful. How do you do the little, little laser thing? I'll never, I'll never remember this thing. Sam, you know how to do the laser? You'd be able to figure it out. No, it's okay. Pointer. That's what, Hey, there's a pointer. Now, point. Well, personal eternity, that's, that's good enough for me. Please, please look at the structure because it's the summary. The summary of verses 8 through 13, you'll, you'll really be wealthy and understand all that language. Good Lord, there's so much, there's so many fibers presented here, but watch the main thread. Watch what he does. To me, the least of all the saints was given this grace. That's the main sentence. He then defines what the grace is. The mission, the stewardship of the gospel to the Gentiles. The, the revelation of this mystery, this particular doctrine that I'm teaching you. This was the grace that was given. And people didn't know about it before. But verse 10, the reason why he gave me this mission. The reason I got this grace was so that the manifold witness of God would be made known. Now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies through the church. The reason for Paul's teaching and the reason for our processing that teaching and proclaiming it and sharing is what God is doing in part with the angels. That's what it says. 
Wait a second. Hebrews says they're all ministering spirits, those who are going to inherit salvation. So aren't they serving us? Don't, aren't we told we're going to rule the angels in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Don't you know that in the kingdom you're going to rule over the angels? We are. But that's not the arrangement now. The arrangement now that you're suffering under this pressure with this invisible war going on, there is something happening that he points to in terms of the angels, the heavenly authorities learning the manifold wisdom of God through the church. According to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. See, every time he talks about Jesus, he has to give us a relative clause that tells us some more Christology. That's just how Paul thinks. And then the therefore that closes the opening thing in verse two, verse three. If indeed, therefore don't. Now, if you understand, if you've been, it's hard to track. I know I talk fast. But if you've understood the flow of what Paul just did, he just sewed up a, 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 a great deposit of revelation in a package between verses two and 13 of his personal suffering for their sake, his personal relationship. But in that is the doctrine that is about the person of Christ. And what do we learn about that doctrine? Well, it is the mystery that wasn't known that it's the church, the body of believers of Jew and Gentile and one new man. We learned that it has a purpose, that this preaching of this message and the inculcation of it into the body of Christ is so that the church will be able to what? Demonstrate, make known the manifold wisdom of God now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies through the church. Can I apply this with you in one way that'll be very pertinent to the time in which we live? Have you been wondering how to reconcile the social justice warrior movement with your mission in Christ? I'm told by many evangelical, supposedly Christian pastors that we have to be social justice warriors if we're really going to serve Christ because we after all have to take care of the widow and the orphan. Obviously, there is demonic power behind the sexual revolution of late in our country that turns evil into good and good into evil. Obviously, there's demonic power in telling people that what matters is their skin color or their culture instead of Christ. Obviously, these are idols that Satan and his demons have somehow gotten people to turn to. Obviously, the only answer to these problems, and there will be problems with cultural clashing, the only answer is to go beyond culture, to go beyond the sun, to the God who holds all things together by the word of his power and see what he's doing. And let me say, boy, are we worried about black and white and all that stuff all of a sudden, right? All of a sudden, all the people that are trying to manipulate the, the conversation and get power for temporal materialism, for, for materialistic goals of rearrangement of the furniture, of, of social change, of all these things, that at the best, you're going to get, what, rich and then die and go to the lake of fire. The best you could hope for in all this SJW stuff is that you get rich and you go to the lake of fire. That's all it has for you. The answer to this cultural riddle, I mean, you can chase down and try to figure out all the riddles and try to sort out all the mazes that they present. They tell you from the very beginning where they're coming from. If I was a minority in the United States... When they started saying that sexual liberation, sexual uh, liberty that has to trump religious liberty, that the idea of, of men doing whatever they want with men and so forth, that that was in the same civil rights 
range as what color you were, as your, as your, your race, as they call it. The minute they started saying that, I would have been so very offended as a person of a minority. Because one of those is something that God does genetically to your skin and your birth, and you're made that. Another thing is something that Romans 1 says you're given over to, and that's the way it works. It's a sin tendency. We're born sinners. And to say that God made both in the same sense, that's a satanic lie. And we've been swallowing and choking on that lie for 30 years in this country. Let's peel the onion a little further. You're not supposed to shame people for who they love. Wait a second. What do you mean love? Do you mean sex? That's for marriage. The thing that killed us was fornication. We first of all said, that's okay. Because I mean, you know, they're going to do, kids are going to do what they're going to do. And then we said, well, we can't judge people for who they do it with. Fine. Okay. I'm not here to judge anyone. But the point is that you start with a sin that takes God's blessing of marriage and turns it into a curse. And then you justify and build a morality based on that sin. We were killed. The poison that we first ate was fornication. And it's back to Darwin. We're animals. Animals mate. They procreate. what they do. Multiple partners is how it works. We're animals. So we started with no God. We said we're animals. Taking what God had made and trying to use that to destroy his revelation of himself. And then we apply that to ourselves in complete disregard of God's revelation about sex, about, about morality, about right and wrong. It's, it's very simple. I mean, this is, an, this is not hard math. But all of a sudden, fast forward, here we are. If you don't say Marxism matters, if you don't say social justice warrior is salvation, then you are part of the problem in your guilty silence. I mean, Satan, Satan has taken the microphone. And the answer is go back to the word. See, what I'm telling you is what we're learning from the apostle Paul and about the doctrine of the church and, and our privileges in Christ. These invisible truths are absolutely irrelevant to people who are only focused on equality of outcomes so that they can manipulate masses of people to give them power. This, this doctrine is irrelevant to them, which makes them irrelevant to eternity. And that's horrible. And so let's get some compassion. Let's stop being afraid of being called a racist. We're not racists. This is just evil. I'm not playing your game. You, you have misunderstood anthropology, sociology, psychology. You don't understand anything you're talking about. I know how you feel, but you're wrong. Let's stop being afraid of being called racist and start having compassion for these people that have been deceived by father of lies. And then you don't have to go after it with anger and gritting your teeth. You can have compassion as you try to help someone understand, or as you just don't buy whatever lies they're selling. It would be more powerful for a black man to say that in our culture. I've heard them do it. And I should even say a black man. I should say a man with darker skin. We, don't even have, we, we can't even talk about this because we've lost our minds and we've made something the issue that isn't. The issue is the one new man in Christ. And let me prove it. If Jew and Gentile is an irrelevant distinction now, who cares whether you're from Sweden or Norway? 
Or what was the one I heard about? The Belize people and the El Salvadorians or something. They, they're not going to get along. And, and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans in the army that I saw, enmity with one another. These are silly vestiges of sin. And they aren't reflective of what is necessary in our time. Guys on Mount Rushmore, I suspect that uh, three of them are definitely absent from the body and present with the Lord, whether we made a statue of them or not. And I, I tend to hope that the other one is too, even though some of his writings make me think maybe not. Jefferson. I, I suspect about Jefferson, but I, I really hope he was a believer at some point in his life. Christians, this is what really matters. This is why you're here. And it's interesting to me that Satan sent this shutdown, don't go to church, go to bars, don't go to church. And then all of a sudden we're having a race war and all those who can say, so that we'll think it through together, this is not the issue, this is a deception. All of us who can say that are silenced because we're supposed to be home. They missed it. They should have done this, um, this race, race war back in you know, April, May. They were a little bit late because we started coming back to church. <laughs> but you know what? You've been to church enough. You've been in the word enough. You know what the answers are. You know that this lie about systemic racism, this lie about systemic race, the system, racism is as a personal sin. A system is an impersonal co-location of choices by multiple persons. That's, it's just arrogance to, to talk like this. And um, so what do you do about it? You love these people. You pray for them. You pray that God will open the, heart, the eyes of their heart to see the truth of real freedom in Christ. As their, uh, our forefathers saw in embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's um, pray for our nation and we'll transition over and uh, serve the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for this eternal life that we've enjoyed, that uh, your riches of grace are in the depths of the challenging things Paul says. And we don't have an appetite for it like we should, Father, but uh, except that you, you grace us out and help us see this. But Peter told us to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby, his mother's milk. And um, we pray for this for our church and for ourselves. Father, help us to long for these things and open our eyes to see them. As the Apostle Paul prayed, I pray that, Father, you would grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that by being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled up to all the fullness that you have, Father, all the fullness of God. And now, God, to you, who are able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to you. Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.